Welcome to the Retail Smarts podcast, where each fortnight we explore the stories and insights of trailblazers in the Australian retail ecosystem. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb, CEO of the National Retail Association. This week, our guest is Josh Howard, the mastermind behind Single Use Ain't Sexy. I don't think I'm a mastermind, but yes, I am behind Single Use Ain't Sexy. I don't know. I think you are a pretty a, a pretty big mastermind here. I mean, no one else has come up with this concept, and it's absolutely <laughs> taken off. Tell us a bit about what you guys have been doing. So I like to describe it as Barocca for hand soap, and so the yep. way it works is we make little dissolvable hand soap tablets, and then reusable glass foaming pump bottles. And so the way it works is you fill the bottles up with water, drop the tablet, let it dissolve. It takes about twenty minutes. And then you pump the liquid solution out as a thick white foam that you wash your hands with. And so the whole idea is that instead of chucking single-use plastic soap bottles into landfill, you just fill our glass bottle up again, drop another tablet in, and the whole cycle starts again. This is incredible. I mean, obviously, you've had mass take up by consumers. And we know from all the statistics that consumers want to see their values reflected in a product. You know, what do you think, I guess, drove the love for your product? Look, I think I'm really passionate about people looking good and doing good. And I think that you're allowed to want to be or do both. And that's what I think the future of sustainable consumption and sustainable products, especially in the CPG space, um, but also kind of in categories that are maybe a little bit more long lasting. And so what we've tried to do is make really beautiful products wrapped in a really cool brand and have them be very functional and and work well as well. And so that's the the kind of space we're playing in. So obviously the name is is meant to be a bit of fun, single use ain't sexy, but it's really about making sustainability cool. Um, And I think there's a big white space in the market to make things that look really beautiful, um, which are also eco-friendly. Absolutely. And I mean, I think um, we were lucky enough to attend Big Show in New York in say, oh God, what feels like a hundred years ago right now. Um, (laughs) Let's just say 2019. Um, And one of the things that we did in retail week was go and have a look at a store um, that was package free. So everything they sold was package free. Mm. As you say, it was beautiful. It was all kind of curated. You could buy everything from, you know, kind of biodegradable sex toys through to, you know, shampoo and conditioner and, and all sorts of things and they went through um, their views on packaging and you know how they regulate their suppliers amongst other things I mean how do you go about kind of taking that ethos from single use ain't sexy throughout your whole supply chain that's a really good question I think for us the big thing is that we don't ship water in our supply chain and so I just thought it was nuts to transport water which is a resource that we're all already paying for and it's at the source, it's at the place where you want to use our products. So if you think about what we're trying to do, on the front end, we're helping people reduce their single-use plastic bottle consumption. On the back end in the supply chain, is about helping people minimise their carbon footprint by not shipping water. So instead, we'll ship the empty bottles and then we'll ship our little tablets, which are way, way lighter than sending huge, you know, bottles of liquid around because the thing is is your hand soap and your body wash and dish detergent they're all like 95 percent water based and so we've distilled the raw ingredients that five percent into the tablet form so when we kind of when we when someone buys say our 10 10 tablet refill pack instead of sending 10 liquid bottles we're sending 10 tiny tablets in a little brown envelope 
And so when I look at our supply chain, these are the kinds of things that I want our business model to kind of stand for and keep building on. It's not just about how it's helping people on the front end, but like what are we doing behind the scenes to help people minimize their carbon footprint? It's incredibly exciting, I think, especially at a time where, you know, potentially businesses felt confined by this concept of COVID-19. But what are we doing more than ever, of course, washing our hands? Is that something that drove you to create this idea? The answer is no. The, it's, it was very, very strange timing. So we had been working for months on the business and then around the exact same time that we were going to launch COVID, COVID really kind of started in Australia and I'm from Melbourne and it was real mass panic down there. And so we just had to, we just had to launch. We just had to kind of keep, keep doing it. I think what was interesting is very quickly we positioned ourselves as solving dual crises. So there was the immediacy of the public health crisis, which was basically helping people stay safe and hygienic by washing their hands. Then there's the ongoing environmental crisis of everyone being like, oh, my God, what do we do about reducing our single-use plastic bottle consumption? What I think has been interesting is we now have a, have a market and a community of people who are still washing their hands ferociously and they care about the environment even more. So if I think about our, our product pipeline and, and what we're bringing out, it's, it's kind of we're building a whole personal care and home cleaning system but in tablet-based form and so that's kind of if I think about like what we were doing because of COVID it's very much going to impact how we kind of expand and scale as a business I reckon. It's interesting that you say that because as an organization we have assisted all of the state governments in Australia as well as the the government in New Zealand implement um, plastic bag bans and it's one of the parts of our business that despite COVID, despite all the chaos, the panic buying, the changing, um, you know, nature of government regulations and, and all of those kinds of things, vaccine passports, it is the one part of our business that absolutely didn't waver and people were still committed to. What do you think the correlation is between, you know, I don't know whether it's lockdowns and people have got lots of time to think um, and their kind of commitment to environment or do you think this is kind of a, a growing wave that's been happening for some time? Obviously, we've just had Glasgow happen. Um, there's lots of discussion about emissions, all of those kinds of things. What do you think is driving consumers to be so dedicated to making significant consumption changes? That's a really good question and something that I basically think every waking hour of my life spend, spent overthinking about. I think it's a combination of things. So I reckon culturally we're at a point now where people understand or most people, I say most sane people, understand the science behind climate change and our environmental impact. And so all of a sudden you're armed with the info to make better choices. Number two, it's become cool to care. And I don't really mind if that's what it takes to make people more sustainable. Like, yeah, great, we'll take it. But now I think, you know, it's almost a status symbol if you're buying sustainable products. And I think that that is okay. If that's what it's going to take, that's fine. Um, I think people are making sustainable products that are cool, at, at least, and cooler. And so that's kind of the space that we're trying to play in is that you don't have to compromise on style just to be more eco-friendly. And so that means for anyone that wants to buy beautiful things or well-designed things, then they can still do it and be eco-conscious. So we just won two um, Good Design Australia Awards, which was so exciting because, you know, you bring these like ideas from absolutely nowhere into fruition and half the time you're thinking like, oh, my God, I hope everyone thinks this is 
needed as I do. And um, when we did that, it was real validation that like our strategy of, you know, design-led conscious consumerism is something that is resonating with people. Then to answer the last part of your question, I think what happened with COVID is we realised how much stuff we chuck out and, you know, you're seeing masks everywhere and you can only use things one time and there's plastic hand sanitizer bottles everywhere. And so I think that also made people really conscious that they're like, all right, well, this can't, this can't be sustained and we've got to be more eco-friendly in the choices that we're making. I love um, the way that you talk about creating beautiful things because I have this theory that, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time in our life working um, and we do things for lots and lots of hours and I have this view that people that get to look at beautiful things all the time have this better life because, you know, it's so much pleasure to kind of, you know, enjoy design or enjoy, you know, something that is aesthetically pleasing. Do you think that having your hometown in Melbourne – which, you know, Victoria is renowned as the capital of retail in Australia. One in four people work in retail. Do you think that, you know, that kind of love of design and beautiful things comes from being immersed as a Melbourne boy in kind of the the halls of capitalism? (laughs) Look, I think when you come from a city that is not beach-based, people find other ways to enjoy themselves. And so that is where maybe aesthetics and design come into it. And so, Yes, to answer your question, I do think that's a big part of it. Melbourne is that city that's about fashion and design and, you know, finding interesting trends and different ways of expressing yourself or presenting yourself. So I think that that has had a big impact on us. Um, I think if you go to any major world city, there's a beauty and a design and an aesthetic that is appreciated and specific to both places, to, to all places. And so if I think about Melbourne, it's very much around, you know, black and that kind of like very cool look. And so we decided early on that we were going to create a sustainability brand built around black and white, which is just not being done. Usually you're seeing pastels or cardboard or craft paper and, you know, greens and all that stuff. And I thought, actually, let's do black and white, make it like the rock and roll child of the sustainability industry in Australia. And so I definitely think that that decision has helped separate us from the pack and make people realise that we are doing things, but, you know, differently and in a really considered visual way. Fantastic. Our listeners love hearing from people that are, you know, founders or CEOs of really interesting businesses. But the one thing that they love hearing about is kind of how did this happen? So who were you before single use ain't sexy? (laughs) Um, So I started off as a lawyer I never, ever practiced. So the day I got admitted, I, I didn't, you know, do anything more. I was far too smart to go down that path. I would <laughs> never have been as creative as I wanted to be. Um, my, my career history is actually in TV and media and digital advertising. So um, my first job at Channel 10 was as Russell Howcroft's assistant, uh, which was an awesome job and I loved it. And he's now on our advisory board. Um, and then I got into digital advertising and worked in New York for four years um, doing that. So I think what I am really passionate about is combining my love for sustainability and trying to have a positive impact with marketing and branding and human psychology and how to connect with people in a way that feels meaningful and like you're not just, you know, an infomercial trying to sell them junk that they don't need. And so every element of our brand an approach has been informed by those kinds of lessons, I guess, that I've learned. So 
I'll give you an example. Like, you know, our business name is Single You Saint Sexy. Um, our company tagline is Don't Be a Tosser, which very excitingly this week we just got the trademark for in Australia. Amazing. Um, so I think it's these kinds of um, these kinds of previous experiences which have informed the way that I go about building this brand because I want to build a real cult brand that is proudly Aussie and and eventually kind of scales globally. And so, you know, it's funny, like you have these experiences and you don't necessarily know when they're going to come in handy or when a certain thing will come back and be useful. And I feel like, you know, seeing you saying sexy over the last 18 months has been the culmination of all of the stuff that I did previously but didn't ever quite know would kind of, you know, pay off as it has. It's, it's interesting because I I am also a lawyer that very, very rarely practices <laughs> these days and I always say that I'm the accidental CEO and I feel like for you, <laughs> you know, whilst this isn't quite accidental, it's certainly an interesting journey. What really interest, interests me about your story is that your previous boss is now on your advisory board um, and that's quite an interesting um I guess, experience because not many people I think can say that they have such a great relationship with an ex-boss of theirs that they're now going to invite them to tell you, in effect, their ideas and opinions and, and you know, in some respects sometimes what to do. Um, what kind of leadership um, values and skills did you take away, you know, from that experience um, and what led you to kind of place him now on your advisory board? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. When we say invite, I think I'm like very, very lucky to have someone like him on our advisory board. Like he's essentially the preeminent, you know, media and advertising personality in Australia. So to have someone like that validate the business, believe in it enough, and then come on board to be part of the team was just awesome. I was so excited. I think the big lessons that I learned working with Russ is that no ideas are too small. Like every day working with him, it's just like an ideas factory. And so especially because that's where I started my career and I was probably quite young and impressionable. I've taken that into all of the work that I do where I'd say to our team, like, let's just think of the craziest ideas. Nothing is wrong. Half of them, of course, like will be so outlandish that they won't work, but let's just get them on a piece of paper and figure out like what could be good. And so I think that that is awesome to have someone like him bounce, bounce ideas around with. And the thing I love about an advisory board is it's not like you're hitting these people up every single day. You're hitting them up when you've actually got something that you want advice on. And so not only do we have Russ, but we have, you know, like people who are, we've got people who are real leaders in their space. And I think one of the things that I've gotten good at is knowing where my blind spots are. You know, I've never built a D2C brand before. Um, so, you know, I think finding people who know how to do things and have done it before has been something that I've, I've learned is needed. And it's awesome because these people, they want to help you, you know, and you've just got to reach out and ask. I think one of the things I'm always fascinated by is you can get to, essentially, you can get to anyone that you want to get to now. You know, I remember when I was a kid, if you wanted to get, get to somebody, it's not like you could DM them on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram or find them on Facebook or guess their email address based on, you know, other email addresses of people at their companies. So I think that, that, that for me now is 
like a really important part of the puzzle is like building the brand and the business with people who have done it before but believe in our new way of doing things. And also just being fearless, right? Like not many people just slide into someone's DMs and are like, hey, my advisory <laughs> Um, well, I think I think I think they're sliding into people's DMs, but not asking them to join it. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably very true. You probably stand out. Absolutely. Um, I love I love that kind of idea that you know no idea is small, um, and that all ideas are, are good, and and kind of inviting your team to ha- think of the craziest ideas they could possibly think of. What are your tips on execution of those crazy ideas? Um, usually that 95% of them won't work. And I think the interesting thing that I've surprised myself with is how many screw ups I've made along the way. And I'm not saying that to be modest. Like it has generally fascinated me, um, with how many mistakes that we've made. And this whole thing of like, you know, you never make the same mistake twice. Like, I don't know who said that because I keep making the same mistakes all the time. And I think if you're going to like really like hit for the rafters and go big, then chances are a lot of your stuff is, is going to fall flat. And it's weird because the things that you think are going to really be impactful often don't work. And then the things that you're like, all right, well, let's give it a, let's give it a try, but I don't know if it's actually going to like materialize. Suddenly they just take off. And so that to me has probably been one of the big lessons is that you have to try heaps of different stuff to really figure out like what your sweet spot is or what works for your community or your product or your mission. And so if I think about all the kind of hilarious things that we have come up with, um, you know, there's been a few that have worked really well. And then it's about trying to pull together a strategy to pursue whatever that was, but different variations of it. Because the thing that I find so interesting is this at the end of the day, it's it's a it's a competition of intelligence. It's a competition of who can be smarter about what they're doing. And to me, intelligence will manifest as creativity. So whoever has the best ideas wins effectively. But the only way to figure out what they are is to try them. So there's a bit of a roundabout way of answering that, but it probably reflects the kind of like intangible nature of what it actually takes to get these things to work. And how do you come back from some of those big failures? Like, because, you know, obviously if you have a few in a row, they've been pretty similar. Like how do you kind of pick yourself up and suddenly decide to just try that idea that you're not really sure if it'll work after something like that? I think at the start of the business, I was definitely much more um, sensitive to things not panning out. You know, you're so invested and you're so obsessed and you're so passionate that if something doesn't pan out, you're like absolutely devastated. Now, I think I have a much more even temperament when it comes to things working or not working. So you're not like, you know, losing the plot if something doesn't work out. It's more just like thinking, okay, let's pivot to something else that will work or let's actually figure out like why the thing that we thought was, you know, like a Hail Mary just didn't just didn't pan out. So there's a couple of things that that I I do now is I ask people for feedback, but I don't ask everyone for feedback. I ask people who I think are specifically brilliant at a a particular area that that idea might've fallen in and say, hey, like why did this work or why didn't it work? Um, I ask our customers for feedback. And so that's where social media can be really useful because you basically have all these tools like use Instagram, for example, you can ask people, you can do polls, you can get them choosing different kind of multi-choice answers to actually understand like why something landed or didn't. Um, 
And then the other thing that I do is I try to be a little bit more self-reflective now. Um, and rather than just sponsor all my ideas, I try and really think like <laughs> seriously about whether something will work or not work and, and why or why not. So like I said, it's just you're just trying stuff all the time and then trying to figure out ways to kind of tweak them and make them better. And so how do you keep yourself grounded? Because obviously this is, you know, this business is incredible and has had incredible success over a short period of time. Um, as you say, you know, you get so invested um, and it's and it's a real journey in terms of, you know, the creation and the failures and the successes and all those kinds of things. What do you do to keep yourself grounded outside of single use ain't sexy? It's, it's honestly really hard because the business feels so all-consuming that it's really difficult to distance yourself from it in any way. And it's a combination of not wanting to and then not also not feeling like you can. And so it's tricky. It's just, it's really tricky. And I don't really think this whole, you know, work-life balance thing is that um, achievable. Like I just think you throw yourself into something and it's the only thing that matters and you just work your ass off until it's a success. Um, I know that probably comes across as kind of like, you know, buying into like workaholic culture and very intense, but that is just my natural instinct. And I don't really know how else to go about things. You know, often I'll listen to podcasts or hear people talking about how, you know, they switch off and don't think about things, but I just, I I can't and at least haven't mastered that yet. So look, there's two things that probably get me as close to to possible as doing that, which is nature and, and working out. I love a good workout because you don't have your phone with you and you just, you know, sweat, you're doing boxing or whatever. The other thing is is nature, just getting out and being a little bit disconnected and feeling refreshed is awesome. Um, but I don't know, I think about this all the time. Like you, you tell me, like what, what's it like with your business? Do you ever feel like you can actually switch off or you're on the weekend, you're having a wine and somewhere deep in the back of your head, you're thinking about that email you forgot to respond to on Friday. Uh, Look, I absolutely subscribe to your way of thinking in the sense of extremities, right? Like, and I, I think that um, if you look at athletes that achieve incredible things, they are hundred percent dedicated to what their goal is at the time. And yeah, you know, I think their life is about seasons. And for you, obviously, the season right now is building and growing this business. And yeah, there might be a time where you've got lots of time to go off to a yoga retreat and sit in nature and and ponder (laughs) the world. And maybe you'll come up with another great idea. But I think, you know, now is the time to be committed to this. And you're obviously so, I think, fulfilled by what you're doing in the sense that, you know, it's got value to you. Um, It reflects your own personal views. And I I think that people underestimate um, the joy that you can derive from work if it's something that you are able to create in and that you're not kind of restricted in terms of what you can say and what you can do and how it works. And there is a certain freedom in that, which I think you know, is, is food for the soul. So, um, I'm similar. I, the working out aspect for me is something that I do to kind of, um, moderate the craziness of life. Um, because as you say, you don't have your phone, it's short and sharp. There is obviously an increase in endorphins. Um, and you can kind of go as hard as you want to, depending on what's happening and and get all of those kind of stressors out. Um, 
but I, I love to travel. So for me, um, the whole concept of no phone, global roaming kind of killed it. Like it was really <laughs> good when you could like go away and no one could contact you. And now it, we're all so connected. Um, it's very different. But cruise ships, you know, back when they weren't, you know, full of disease, um, were also a really good place. The internet was so expensive that you just um, could kind of take a break. So uh, look, I subscribe to that um, extreme kind of work ethic because I think there's I think there's a time and a place right it's not forever totally um but it's an incredible totally and like you have to feel so doggedly passionate about it that it just feels instinctive that 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 kind of like obsession with with making whatever project you're working on really fly and you know I think when it's your own thing it does yeah, and some might argue that potentially the people that gravitate to law perhaps are more inclined <laughs> to work like this um, and certainly lots of lawyers but certainly lots of professionals and certainly entrepreneurs that I know are exactly the same. So I, I don't I don't think it's just us. Okay, um, but I do think it is absolutely about um, seasons. What do you think you know, what advice would you give, say, you know, a retail entrepreneur or just an entrepreneur out there that's got an idea and they just don't know where to start? I think there's probably two big lessons that I've learned that are quite practical. So the first one is you have to just have a crack at something. Like you just have to begin. And I think so many of us like have that idea that we don't pursue because we're like, oh, it's just, it's not going to work. I think one of the things I realised about myself early on is that I always thought that like my perfectionism was one of my greatest assets. And then I realized actually it was preventing me from starting things or having a go at stuff. And so it feels like it's a very unnatural um, thing to throw aside because business and especially startups end up being this endless kind of like treadmill of messiness where nothing is ever done. Your to-do list is never done. Nothing is ever set up quite as you would like it because it's just you know, your eyes are bigger than your mouth and there's always too much to do. The second thing um, that I would say is it's really important to just kind of like be unrelenting in your pursuit. There's been so many instances where I have felt completely cooked or like totally exasperated or like another thing didn't work, like kills me, like, oh, my God, like how many more hits can we take? But, of course, People don't really see the hits. They just see all the good stuff that are like that, that's obvious. But I, I really do – I said before it's like a game of ideas and creativity. I, I also think it's a game of like relentlessness, like who can be the last person standing. And there's been so many times where the frustration creeps up on you so much that you're just like, is this, is this sustainable? Like is this worth it? Like I'm just taking so many hits and if I just went and got a normal job, it would be so much more – peaceful and relaxing and so you have to train yourself to just kind of persevere through everything and it's I I, I don't want to swear but it's a real head bleep um, (laughs) often and I think you just have to somehow g yourself up enough to just keep pushing through every single thing that feels like it's a challenge. Do you have a favorite book? Um I recently read Obama's memoir, which I loved. I love reading political books um, because I feel like 
having a successful business is like building a successful political campaign or a successful political party. Um, and I think that if I look about the, the way that politicians message their their mission, that's how I see successful brands doing that as well. So I think that was a, that was an interesting book and I learned a lot of lessons that have been useful for us as a business. He's really insightful. And funnily enough, for me, um, there's a particular documentary. It's called um, Women Who Run With Wolves. And in effect, it's the same thing. It's female political leaders across, you know, a 100-year period that, you know, documents all of their kind of journey. And for me, it's exactly the same. It's more about that kind of how long can you sustain being you know, taking all of the hits, right? Because it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of hits that happen, I think in business. Um, but also how do you kind of pivot or strategize and take those and, and turn them into, you know, a success or, or, you know, whatever it is that you need. So I, yeah, I understand the political, um, drivers there. Um, and look, I just think, we're incredibly um, lucky to have obviously been able to speak to you today and we're so excited to watch what happens next with Single Use Ain't Sexy. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I should give our business a little plug so if people want to try it, they know where to go. Um, so our website is singleuseaintsexy.com. You can follow us on Instagram, which is at singleuseaintsexy. And then for your listeners, we're going to do a little exclusive discount code um, so it's going to be retail twenty two zero, and they can get 20% off if they want to try the site. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. No problems. Thanks for having me. I've, I've enjoyed this. I love any time I get to talk shop. And look, hopefully um, we'll, that we'll hear lots more from you and, and throughout your journey um, moving forward. But thank you so much for your time um, and just, you know, giving us your insights. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.